You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. A few years ago, I bumped into a friend of mine and she was out there pushing uh, her buggy with her firstborn child in it and she was pushing the baby and I said hello to her and I said, well, how are things going? And she leant over and looked at the baby in the buggy and she says, see pushing this wee one. Just looking at the top, she says, it's like pushing my father-in-law around. Just because of the bald head looked just like her father-in-law, this little child without much hair at the time. And tonight we're talking about genetics. We're talking about DNA of a Christian. As you read Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, it's all about the Christian's DNA. And in biological terms, DNA is what makes you uniquely you. With a large dollop of genetics involved, there's many of us say, locally, don't we? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. We all know what we're talking about. We often end up looking like, sounding like our parents. There is no escape. If in spiritual terms we were to take a paternity test and the results were published, Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 17 tells us who we are as Christians. What does it say? Children of God. The fact that there's a battle raging in our lives at this time between the good that we want to do and the evil that we wish we didn't do is the very first piece of evidence that we actually do belong to Jesus. The battle in our lives is evidence that we do belong to Jesus. No battle, you're not a believer. If you're in a battle, you most certainly are a believer. For that shows up in our DNA structure by those who are seeking to be led by the Spirit in the midst of the onslaught of our daily lives. But evidence of our identity becomes clearer as Paul tells us very clearly here that we have been adopted as sons. Look at verses 14 and 15. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption as sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. If we are in Christ Jesus, we have a new identity, a new dynamic, or as Romans talks about, a new law at work within us, a spirit that does not condemn us. For the spirit that we have received when we come to faith is the spirit of Christ, is the spirit of adoption, who creates in us a childlike dependence upon God as our Father. In verse 15, the use of the word adoption is unique to Paul in all of the Bible. Adoption was not something that was practiced by the Jews. The Jews did not adopt any children into any of their families, but it was a very common practice by the Greeks and the Romans. And he's speaking to a Roman audience here. Roman historians describe adoption like this, being granted full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. It's on the screen there if some of you are taking notes. And what a perfect analogy for the Christian. We're granted full rights of sonship. 
And ladies, don't be perturbed by the gender specifics here. The fact that all Christians, male and female, are included in this term sonship, together receiving the right to sons, means that each of us receives what in the ancient Near Eastern culture was a special place of affection in the hands or the eyes of the Father. And we belong to this family, not by natural birth, that's not where we were born into. We were born, Ephesians tells us, uh, into, as children of wrath. But having now been placed by God's Spirit through trust in Jesus Christ, John chapter 1 verse 12 puts it a different way, doesn't he? Sometimes you did at Christmas. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, but children born of God. Christians are admitted to the most noble of families. We get to call God Father, a term that the Jews would have balked at. No Jew called God his Father. He dare not call God his Father. In fact, the Jews, when they opened their Old Testament scrolls, could not even bring themselves to read or say the name of God. But it was that reverence that actually caused a barrier. I mean, it's very nice to be called by your full title, isn't it? I mean, it shows respect. If you're in a waiting room and Miss X, could you come now, please? Let's call her Mrs. Y, could you come to us now, please? It might sound very respectable, but I know myself, whenever I'm called Reverend Leach, there are some people I know who use it very sincerely, but there are other people who use it out of a remote politeness because they don't really know me. But I also know some people who call me Reverend Leach regularly through gritted teeth and they do it cynically. I know that. How much more pleasant if I'm walking up the street if someone says, hey, David, there's a friendship. There's a relationship there. And that's what's happening here. The eternal God, the Son, has made it possible that we can call God our Father. I uh, personal, relational name. We don't call him blank. We call him Father. And Paul pushes it even further, doesn't he? The impact here is amazing. He doesn't just say you get to now call God Father. He now says, because the Spirit is out within us, we can now call him, do you see it there? Those famous words in verse 15, Abba, Father. Many of us know this, don't we? We've heard it so many times before. Abba is the ancient Aramaic word for Papa. The sound from the mouth of a dribbling, babbling little baby who can't form the word Daddy properly says Abba Baba. That's all he can manage. That's all she can manage. But it's the cry of a dependent child looking up to its parent. And that's the Christian's cry to God. Papa. Abba. Father. And that's how Jesus called his father, wasn't it? Do you remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane with the cross looming the very next day? Even there in Mark 14, verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Will you remove this cup from me? Yet not what I will, but what you will. And there in that moment, we see what it's going to cost him. The eternal son of the eternal father dies. He's there in the garden of Gethsemane asking, oh, and babbling, Abba, Baba. Like a child, Father, only you can remove this from me. But he chooses to obey rather than walk away. 
The commentator Jeremiah puts it like this. Thus one word, Abba, if it is understood in its full sense, comprehends the whole message of the gospel. We need to get it into our minds that calling God Father is at its heart gospel. It's good news that he is not remote. We're in relationship with him. The creator of this world, we can speak to him as a dependent child to a loving creator, yes, but a loving father who is our God. And it's only the spirit through Christ who enables us to do that. He's a spirit of adoption, urging us to look to the Father, to call on Him, to pour out our hearts and our lives to Him. And yes, through the inevitable sufferings that we will face. Paul tells us why some Christians are tempted to neglect this approach and forget that they can call upon their Abba in heaven. And some have slipped away, he says here, into the spirit of fear. Do you see that in verse 15? The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. The minute we begin to fear God in that, oh, I can't come near him since, the devil has won again. He's gained another little victory in your life. You've slipped into the spirit of fear, the spirit of slavery, thinking that because you've neglected God, because you've sinned again, and you've not been what you should, you car away, you stay away, and you think you have some crawling back to do, back into this royal family. And you think, oh Lord, I'm so sorry about that. I'm going to crawl back on hands and knees into your family. Isn't that what the prodigal son thought? I'll go back to my father, but I'll ease the blow by groveling. I'll come back and say, I'll be your servant. I'll come back as a slave. But what does the father do? He places a ring on his finger. He clothes on his shoulders and throws a party. His son was lost and is now found, was dead and is alive again. Every time we sin and go away, as long as we come back in repentance, he does not receive us back as slaves groveling on the floor. He receives us back as son in his arms and he's glad we're there. That's what it is. To have God as our father. The devil loves to detract from God's grace. And some of you I know are sitting here tonight and he loves to put in your minds the doubt that God is good. And he says, oh, come on, you've sinned again. He's saying this into your mind tonight. You've sinned again. You haven't prayed for a while. How can you possibly come back to God? How can you cry and call him Father? You need to work harder, read your Bible more, pray more. You need to earn his favor all over again. Paul would say that's nonsense. Don't fall back into slavery. Don't fear this God. He's your Abba, Papa, Father. You may recall me sharing some of my antics at school as a pupil through some illustrations, especially the day I went and sat in the headmaster's chair in his study as he did a charity fun run around the school. That is until he saw me and my friends looking about in his office and he came in and we had nowhere to hide like the fools we were. We stood there scared. We deserved his severity. He was the master with the authority figure. We should stand in fear and we should respect him. But you know, I doubt when he got home and sat down at the meal table that same night, I doubt that his kids hid from him or tried to avoid his glare. They maybe even came running to him when he came through the front door and called him dad. You see, there's a difference. I was carrying away in fear because I had no natural relationship with him. But the minute he walked in through his own front door, he was there with his children, and they called him Abba. But as if this isn't enough, 
The spirit of adoption works in us and gives us assurance. Something most Christians struggle with at different points in their lives. If you haven't struggled with assurance yet, you will at some point. That concern that deep within us asks us, am I really a Christian? And Paul answers this in an amazing way. He says to Christians, you can be sure. For the Holy Spirit himself acts as your witness. Look at verse 16. It's a very simple little verse, but it's a lovely verse. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The setting like so much of Romans is this imaginary law court. You're standing waiting for the results of the paternity test, in this case, to prove if you really are a child of God. And the devil stands, and the devil literally stands, uh, you know, there, uh, and he's got this huge pile of files, and he can open up any of the files and turn to any page, and he can find somewhere where he can accuse you. Of course he can. He's got lots of accusations to throw at you. And he, he, it's almost like he looks at the judge of all the earth, God himself, and says, these, your honor, are the facts. Surely this evidence is conclusive. There's no way that this one can be a son of yours. And you stand there, maybe, on your own, trying to convince the judge that you're a child of God, that you do trust in all that Christ has done. And then suddenly in your own spirit, you begin to feel down, and your fervor flags, and, and then he steps forward. And we, we sometimes think it should be Jesus steps forward at this moment, but it's not. In this moment in Romans 8, another witness supports our claim. Like any reasonable case, the evidence must be taken from more than one witness. And Jesus, as we find later on at the end of Romans 8, is one of the witnesses. But here the first witness appears, and it's the witness of God's Holy Spirit who stands up and testifies and says, he's one of the family. He or she's one of ours. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to him. Yes, God is the Father. And so the Spirit steps up and he assures our souls and he stands the evil one down and he says, this one is one of our own. The Spirit of God is in us and with us and for us and assuring us. And the Christian is all the more secure when we read the very next verse, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Notice that Paul says inheritance is ours once again here with Christ. What's his is ours. The inheritance is not so much about ownership, but again, it's relationship, isn't it? What's his is ours. We've already thought about the privilege of calling God by the same name as the eternal son, but every benefit which is his is available to us. We have all that wealth of spiritual resources to draw on. We have a seat at his table, we have a place assured in heaven, which is a much-needed resource. And that's a deep-seated reminder to all of us in this world and all that we're going to face because the hinge point of this whole chapter comes and we suddenly read at the end of verse 70 that we're going to suffer. And you see, suffering is part of the DNA of the Christian, which is where 17 takes us into 18 and the rest. But before we move on, let me remind you, having taken that swab, having checked that sample, it's come back that alongside the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the way we can address God is Abba, Father. And the inheritance we have received and the suffering that we're about to face, the labs are convinced that this one is truly a son of God. Do you remember when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism? 
Remember when Jesus stood on the Mount of Transfiguration? What did the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased. If you are in Christ tonight, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, God the Father looks at you and says, This is my beloved Son, with you. Yes, with you. So we need to hear that tonight. No matter what's going on in our lives just now, he looks at you and says, you're a beloved son. I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased with you. But what's the suffering we're going to face? Well, it's evident that the world around us is crying out for change. We've kind of touched on that tonight with that whole Ollie Robinson story, haven't we? But let's look first of all at creation's cry. Verses 18 to 22, we've got creation's cry. Do you see it there in verses 18 to 22? All about the present sufferings, creation waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, the frustration of creation, longing for the future, its bondage and decay, and looking for this freedom and this glory. Creation knows. Creation knows that things are not as it should be. More often than not, this world is just, well, these are good Northern Irish words, it's wick, isn't it? Things are really bad. But how or why is creation calling out? Well, we all know, don't we really? If we've been believers for any length of time, we know it all stems back to, to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve had sinned and things went horribly wrong from there. Do you remember what God said to Adam? Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit I told you not to, I placed a curse on the ground. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles and you will eat of its grains. And all your life you'll sweat to produce food and until your very dying day. Then you will return to the ground from which you came. For dust you are and to dust you will return. From that moment, things in this world are not as they should be. The ground was cursed. The thorns grew up. The working the land would result in blood, sweat, and tears. Sin has dire consequences in every corner of our lives, in every corner of this world. And I even think we need to get in our heads, verse 20, we read it's God's judgment that fell upon this whole earth. For verse 20 tells us, for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. It's God who subjects this world to the curse. This world is broken, badly broken. Our world was not meant to be like this at the beginning, but because sin entered it, and as a result of sin comes death, we read here, rebellion against God's word, like Adam and Eve, filters down to us today. It leads us to shed tears at graveside. There are empty chairs and a loneliness in some of our homes that tears us apart. There are wars and horrific acts of genocide and violence. There are famines where children don't, be on, don't live beyond a few weeks old. There are earthquakes that rip cities apart. There are floods that send houses and families to a watery grave. There are diseases that we have no control over. There are environmental disasters. There are greenhouse gases, increased allergies, animals that we used to love being wiped out. Never mind flat tires, leaky pipes, broken bones, computer viruses. All that stems from the fall. Some of us weep over marriages we are in or relationships that don't work out. Some of us are estranged from our children. 
Some of us have fallen out with others over finances. Children still get knocked down by drunk drivers. Teenagers arriving from Eastern Europe are still being exploited in mid-Ulster. Exam results maybe not working out as we anticipated. Maybe we feel unjustly dealt with by a superior at work. Maybe we've been diddled out of time and money by our employees. Maybe dementia is robbing a loved one of ours out of their dignity. Oh, how that first sin has spoiled everything and infected others. This natural world is groaning. It's creaking. It's not that it's under a God who doesn't care, but it's in a world that's been spoiled by sin. Isn't this fascinating quote by someone who definitely isn't a Christian? Woody Allen. Woody Allen, that American comedy film writer, wrote this. He says, I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and they're all cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something very beautiful and my thought will be at that moment, he's only 28 years old and I only wish I could savor this moment in some way because you know this is as good as it's going to get for him. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against death. All of us are trying to make sense of a world that has gone wrong. And sometimes, we all do it. Sometimes we throw our hands in the air and say, I just can't do this anymore. I can't face any more of this. One of my closest Christian friends growing up was a man of great faith. He was a real mentor to me and he had a great job. He he was very good at. He, He had a wife who was hospitable and bubbly and children who were bright and sporty and musical. He had a lovely home. He enjoyed great holidays. He was a magnet of a friend, added value to every conversation I had with him until his wife took ill. And then one child couldn't cope at school and started to withdraw. Another child turned back on church in the Christian faith. A third left home to escape the mess. Friends began to stop calling. His work began to dry up. And all he could say to me was, it felt like every time we raised our heads to cope with the next crisis, it felt like a sniper was taking a shot every time we raised our heads above the parapet. Maybe some of you feel like that tonight. Every time you just think things are getting, boom, boom. Or I could stand here genuinely and I could stand and weep for many in our two congregations, through absolutely no fault of their own, life isn't as comfortable as it used to be, but rather it's ugly. And I'm just not talking one or two families. I'm talking lots of people. That's the kind of world we live in. And as a result, verse 19 tells us the children of God are to be revealed, and creation's longing for that moment when the children of God are going to be revealed. When creation's eager, so eager to see God's people revealed. His own creation longed to see her master, her creator return and make everything new. The picture here, the image of eager anticipation of creation, is literally, it says in the the Greek, that creation is is on tiptoes, straining everything to see when all of this is going to be over. That's what it is. When's all this mess going to stop? 
And it's interesting how creation and the creator are so intimately bound up together. Have you ever thought about that? What happened at Jesus' birth? The star leads the wise men to where Jesus was. Something bright and guiding. In the miracles, Jesus spoke and the wind and the waves died down, just like Jesus was reprimanding a a puppy dog. In absolute control, there was a connection between the creator and his creation. We see him opening the eyes of the blind so they could see. He gives legs to the paralytic. There we see what Jesus is all about. He's all about a renewing, a restoring, a saving. And then even at his death, what do we read whenever he dies on the cross? The earth shook, graves broke open, darkness falls. Creation and creator all bound up together. One responds to the other. And this creation that we're living in now, the creaking and the groaning that all of us are experiencing right now is shouting to us, screaming to us, this is not it. The best is yet to come. There is more. I love what Isaiah says about this in Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to what it says. In that day, The wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard and the goat will be at peace. Calves and younglings will be safe among the lions. A little child will lead them all. The cattle will graze among the bears. Cubs and calves will lie down together. The lions will eat grass as the livestock do. Babies will crawl safely into poisonous snakes. Yes, a little child will put its hands on the nest of deadly snakes and pull it out unharmed. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all of that holy mountain. And as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know their God. That's what the new earth will look like. That's what it will look like when it's restored and renewed in Christ. There'll be complete freedom and safety. It'll be a place where toddlers can stick their hands into the snake pit and there'll be no sting. It's where bears and lions can be cuddled and played with like toys. For not only will he redeem our bodies from the grave, but he's also going to redeem this earth. That's what I'm excited about. Look at verse 22. We can almost hear it groaning like a woman in painful childbirth. It's so, so sore and excruciating, but the result is a beautiful new life. And I want you to notice something in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. Nowhere does the word heaven appear. Nowhere does the word heaven appear. The world that this creation is waiting for, the world that our God is creating for us is going to be a new earth that we enjoy. Physically, we enjoy. And that's why he says in verse 23, Paul mentions our bodies as the final triumph of our redemption. So here's my point. The glory God promises us, the glory by which we should measure our present sufferings, is not an unreal dream, but a very recognizable reality. It is this creation, the creation we live in right here, right now, perfected. I want you to do something for me. Look at your fingers. Look at your fingers. Some of you have probably done this at school, even at primary school. I'm sure some of you have done painted with your fingers. And the thing you all know about those fingertips is what? Your fingerprints are unique to you. There's no one else in this world who has got fingerprints the same as you. No one in this world has got fingerprints the same as you. But you know something? Everything suffering and death will take away from us. God will give back to us in better condition. And one day, these fingerprints, if we're trusting in Jesus, will handle and touch a new creation.
where there's no sin and no sorrow and no suffering. Creation has got to be redeemed so that it's a fitting place for God's redeemed people to live. This is how God turns ordinary people into heroes. He has the nerve, if I can put it this way, to look us right in the eye tonight and say, your present sufferings are not worth comparing to what I'm planning for you in the next creation. Who else could dare say that to us? Nobody even thinks in these terms. For everyone else is offering us an escape from our sufferings, but no one else is offering an eternal hope infinitely greater than our sufferings. Friends, do not, do not ever see your life now or in the future as the final measure of happiness, your worth or significance. This present life of sighs and groans and tears will one day lead to shouting and dancing, and that will define us. For that will be the venue in which we will experience the all-surpassing worth of being children of God. A new heaven and a new earth will blow all the sufferings we're facing now right off the scales. Our future glory will literally shatter the glass and scatter the sand of time across all of eternity. For we will be free. And we will be free to enjoy his unrestrained, uncontained love forever. No barrier. Nothing between us. That's God's great goal. Creation can't wait. Creation waiting for that day. On its tiptoes for that day. And we should be longing for that day. My last point really quick. Our cry. The cry of God's children. That's what it says in verse 22 and 23. Not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Thoughts of our full adoption to God's heavenly family, finally to see our Father, finally to be with our elder brother Jesus. For at this moment, yes, we are his. Yes, we are saved. We're safe. But our salvation is not yet complete. It'll only be on that day when our salvation is fully complete. We are, in a sense, waiting to be glorified, waiting for that to happen. And Paul talks about this future as, verse 24, our hope. Let me ask you tonight, can you wait to see Jesus? Can you wait to see Jesus? I can't wait to see him. And thank him. Praise him. That's our hope. One day we're going to see him. And that will be the whole new way of life from then on. Because new hope reflects new people. And verse 23 says, we've all got this because of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Let me keep this really simple for us. What's the first fruits of the Holy Spirit? Some of you might remember that advert for Bisto all those years ago. Remember Bisto gravy, boys and girls, that you put in your Sunday roast? The Bisto granules? Well, there used to be this great image of these two kids and they could, the noses were going, weren't they? And they could follow the, the waft of the gravy and it went through and there it was in the kitchen and there was the beautiful Sunday lunch set out with the roast beef and there was the gravy. And we are here. And we, we're just getting a wee whiff of it tonight. The first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of all that is to come 
one day we'll be sitting down with those meat and potato and gravy at the great celebration of God. It's just a whiff now. But one day we'll be there. As God saved, redeemed people. Tasting it. We've tasted it. But we'll have far more. Are you longing for heaven? Paul urges these Romans and us to push on, to keep looking, to keep straining, to keep following that with. Because look at verse 24. This is a key verse for any of us living in this world right now. Who hopes for what he already has? Why don't you go in and think about that time? Who hopes for what you've already got? That's a daft thing to do. Because then you're not hoping for it, you've already got it. But what he's implanted in us by his spirit is a hope. We haven't got it all yet, but we have some of it, and more and more is to come. The first funeral I ever conducted was actually one of the biggest funerals I ever ever conducted. It was for a man who'd come to a Christianity Explored course in a coffee shop in Bangor, and I'd got to know him well. He'd been diagnosed with cancer. He'd only been given six months to live. But he was still fit and able to sit and discuss around Mark's gospel. He brought me out to his house on a few occasions to talk about what we were looking at. Oh, it was a huge house on the edge of Donegadee. Beautiful house looking out over the water. It was decorated like I'd never seen before. The garden, I'm pretty sure he used scissors to cut it. It was, it was just perfect. There were, hot, there were pictures all over the walls of beautiful holidays he'd had with his family. He had three cars in the garage and two motorbikes. He didn't give his life to Jesus. And I stood in the first time for my life I ever used the words at the graveside. Earth to earth. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. And he was gone. And I noticed the moment I did that, I looked up from the graveside and where the cemetery was. The cars were still passing them up and down the road. And it had a huge, huge house, might have had lots of money. But no one else cared. Everyone else was just getting on. But two years later, I conducted the funeral of a lady. There were three people there. She had nothing. Her son had Down syndrome. He was in his late 40s. And he and I stood at the graveside and I had my arm around him. And I was able to say earth to earth, ashes to ashes, ashes dust to dust, with a smile on my face, knowing that she was a believer. And she had everything. Everything yet to come. Get up on your tiptoes and see what God has in store for you. Yes, we'll hurt in this world. Yes, we'll suffer. There'll be distress and death and disappointment. But keep focusing on that, that hope because his promises will not fail. Tonight, if our heads are down and our noses are deep in this world, he asks us, what would you rather have? All of life's happiness is now for a time or none of it here and all of it there for eternity. We all know what the right answer is. But Paul is coaxing us here. Paul is persuading us. Paul is urging us here to use those words that we've sung. Sometimes you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. People whose hearts have hold of Jesus Christ have a treasure that this world can never give them, a treasure this world can never take away from them. 
Christians, ordinary people like you and me sitting here today with all the burdens for our family and our friends and the struggles we face and the sins that we battle. If you're a Christian today, you are invincible. As we'll read later on in Romans 8, you are more than a conqueror. Through him he loved us. As the church father and martyr of the Christian faith, John Chrysostom, said as he was being threatened with banishment from his home and his family being told that he would have no friends left if he stuck stubbornly to his Christian faith and he's told everything else would be taken away from him he said this no you cannot for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me I defy you for there's nothing you can do to harm me I want to finish with this story Sorry, I've taken so long tonight. Some of you are going to think that I spent all my Saturday nights standing in chip shops. But I told you, do you remember, some of you remember a few weeks ago, I told you about a wee fella in a chip shop. And he came in, and he was about this height, and he was all, he had been in the farm working all day, and he literally walked in, and he, he, he handed the bag over in the chippy, and he used his mum's card. Do you remember I told you that story? And he got the food. I was in the chip shop again last night. And who was in? Same wee fella. But you know what? This time he wasn't muddy to the eyeballs from the farm. He'd been playing football all day. And then he walks in the kit. And he was bogging. Same as last time, only for a different reason. He was bogging from head to foot. Honestly, he was stinking. Everyone moved away a wee bit when he walked in, to be honest. And then he walks. And it was busy last night. And he walked and he waited his turn because there were lots of people in front of him and people moved around him. And I could see him looking at his watch because he realized that either mum was sitting in the car and he was looking out and checking behind. And then eventually, he gets to the front again. Same thing happened. He held up the bag. The name was written on it. He held out the wee card and he put it in the machine. It went bleak. And the woman handed not just one bag last night, three there were pasty suppers all around in his house last night. Three huge bags. And out he went. And I had to open the door for him. He had so much. He had so much. But we're back to that again. He knew who he was. And he knew who was paying. And you know what struck me last night? As he walked out. <sighs> what a feast he was going to. us. We haven't had to pay a penny. And we're bogging from head to foot in sin. But whenever we stand before the Lord in the final day, it's not our own name we're carrying. We'll go, beep, Jesus. Beep, his Holy Spirit. The Father will say, come and join the It'll be worth it. Keep on. Keep on. Let's pray.